Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne today's Western Germany that is over 2000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence it is full of events and narrations that represent European history as a microcosm. Presenting this episode's random fact about Cologne. In the Middle Ages the knowledge of the Roman waterline was lost, so the people in the Middle Ages thought that the waterline to Cologne served the Romans to extract limestone, which in the course of time settled in it due to the constant flow of water. This so-called marble was an extremely popular building material for church altars in the Middle Ages, because at first sight it looked exactly like marble from Italy. In this episode we once again leave the chronological path of our narrative. We had already arrived with Cologne's timeline in late antiquity. This episode, however, revolves solely around goddesses, gods, cults from other places and, of course, early Christianity. And the myths also make a comeback in this episode. So stay tuned. With this topic, religion in Roman Cologne, it is difficult to place this at a specific point in time. So we will jump back and also look a little bit into the future. That sounds confusing? Well, it doesn't have to. I'm trying to present it in the best possible way. Just listen to me. Anyone who has watched films about Roman antiquity might feel the same as I used to. You quickly get the impression that there was simply Jupiter and his colleagues. But even with the Roman gods, there were often local or thematic deviations and variations. To stay with the example of Jupiter, the father of the gods, among others, he was worshipped in Cologne as Jupiter Dolicenus in his own temple. This form of worship of Jupiter was extremely popular with the Roman soldiers and was probably of oriental origin. The temple belonging to him, Jupiter Lecanus, in Cologne was probably located near the Praetorium, since the governor of the province served as the high priest. The Jupiter we all know of, the standard version so to speak, was of course worshipped in the great temple on the Capitoline Hill in Cologne. The temple that we already got to know in the episode about Emperor Trajan. This may sound complicated, but in the end, these Jupiters were only nuances of the respective Roman god. Most of the times, these nuances had their reason that they were adapted to the local conditions of the respective prevailing culture. This is because the Romans were extremely clever in integrating the gods and religious customs from their newly conquered territories into their own pantheon of gods. Thus, the Gallic god of war, Teutates, was simply adapted to the Roman god of war, Mars. The worship of these gods was very diverse in ex execution that may not seem so to us today because even here, for today's generations, the only what is left after 2000 years remains. And these are mostly just temples made of stone and votive stones. But religious practices also include dances, songs, the use of various scents, long forgotten prayers and processions. As in the Old Testament, it was also customary in the pagan religions to sacrifice. The nature of these sacrifices which were offered to the gods were varied. Flowers, wine, animals, incense, jewels or simply agricultural products. The priests working in these Roman pagan temples and shrines were almost all state officials. The fact that civil servants performed religious rituals 
was completely in the self-image of the people of that time. The city as such was not only the political, but also the religious center of the region. And for the good of the city with higher powers, it was taken for granted in the ancient world that their civil servants pray to the gods. In the characterization, the pagan Roman gods were indeed gods who were supposed to bring blessings to the state, a circumstance that was to lead Christianity to enormous popularity. Why? Well, from a theological perspective, because God seeks a personal relationship with the individual human being, if a listener here should be a Christian, you know exactly how to speak to God. Just pray and you'll get in contact. With the pagan religions of Rome, it was mainly only possible to do this through the state priests with complicated rituals. So it is hardly surprising that besides the Roman state gods, other cults also found a large following in Cologne. Until the end of Roman times in Cologne, even after the rise of Christianity, the pagan religions remained widespread. Their worship in public places determined to a large extent the everyday life of the people in Cologne in the five centuries Cologne had been a Roman city. Like taking a relaxing walk on the weekend? Well, that wasn't possible because there were no Sundays. Every day was practically a working day. But if you think that the people in Cologne in Roman times had to slave away every day, you are wrong. For even without a fixed weekly day of rest, there were numerous state and religious holidays. This holiday calendar was determined by the Council of the Curians, the municipal center of Cologne we already talked about. The number and dates of course varied over time. A fixed part of the holiday calendar was certainly the birthday and the acclamation to the throne of the respective ruling emperor. A festival lasting several days was the Saturnalia, which was celebrated throughout the Roman Empire in December. People got drunk, women dressed like men or men dressed like women. As a slave, you were allowed to tell your master what you think and order him to do things for you. In general, the otherwise strict Roman moral code was considerably relaxed in these days. The social order was abolished. At night, the party went on, people drank and danced extensively in the streets. If you already know a little bit more about Cologne, you should know about such a hustle and bustle in the city. Turning the social order upside down? That's what we Colonians are still good at to this day. Oh no, the whole Rhineland even. Saturnalia sounds a lot like the carnival in our Rhineland, if you ask me. But this may be a bit too far-fetched, because there is no direct line from the Saturnalia to the Rhenish carnival. From a local patriotic point of view, carnival could certainly be called the heritage of the Romans here with us, but nowadays research is certain that the Rhenish carnival of today has no direct line to the Roman Saturnalia. People simply love to celebrate, no matter which culture or age they belong to. It is a coincidence that similarities appear in the way the festivities have been celebrated over the centuries. I think it's a pity that it's always said that the Germans do not have fun or any humor. That may perhaps be true of so-called comedians on German TV or many other regions in Germany, which I will not mention here cause out of respect. I personally can only speak for the Rhinelanders and their carnival. We do indeed have a great sense of humor and excellent sense of silliness and carnival is always a spectacle. Life should never be taken too seriously because in the end you'll die anyway. So why not have a good laugh for once in a while? But no. 
You tourists only ever want to go to Munich, to the Oktoberfest, to stand in long queues there, only to then buy a much too big beer for an overpriced price and listen to horrible, terrible music. And if you come to Cologne, many sadly just jump off the tourist bus, take a picture of the cathedral and hop back on the bus, never really experiencing and maybe enjoying this old city of Cologne. But it was not just the Roman gods that have been here that were worshipped in Roman Cologne. The cult of the Matrone was very widespread in Cologne. Since Matrone is just Latin for mothers, I will stick to the English version. Here it is particularly evident how the local non-Roman population gradually merged with the Roman settlers to form the Gallo-Roman culture we already talked about. The worship of the mothers was actively practiced by the Germanic Ubi, so it had Gallic-Germanic origin. It had been imported by the Ubi into the region of the Cologne lowland when they were resettled by Governor Agrippa around the year 1. But already from the 2nd century onwards, this Germanic worship of the mothers was clearly absorbed into the visual language of the Roman kind of god-worshipping. Certainly, other Germanic Gallic gods were worshipped in the area of pre-Roman Cologne. However, after the arrival of the Romans, they seem to have had little or no significance anymore, because sanctuaries or votive stones are hardly ever found of these. Only the worship of the mothers that was of Ubian origins is an exception. I deliberately speak in the plural, as the mothers were represented in threes. Inscriptions with them on so-called votive stones can be found throughout the area and around Cologne. About 700 of them have been found so far in the Roman province of Lower Germania up until today. More than for all the other deities together, they only make a total of just 250 inscriptions compared to the 700 of just the cult of the mothers. In the area of Roman Cologne itself, 60 votive stones of the mothers have been found so far. The worship of the mothers was probably the kind of religion that gave comfort to many people in their daily lives in Rome Cologne. There were no main goddesses among the mothers, and just because the mothers were represented in threes, this does not mean that there were only three goddesses in total. From their numerous names, which cannot really be pronounced in English, such as Alfani, who was worshipped on a votive stone near Bonn, it's clear that many tribes defined their mothers differently and above all that they were dependent on their location. This means that different mothers were worshipped in the village of today's Jülich near Cologne than for example Bonn or Cologne itself. These votive stones of the mothers were common throughout the area, not only in the cities but also on paths, crossroads and fields. There was something like the small chapels along the wayside or shrines were a picture of the Virgin Mary or the Christian crosses at intersections, which are still known, especially from dominant Catholic regions. In both religions, they often served as places of rest, of inner reflection and invited to prayer and worship, for safe continuation of the journey or to ask for recovery from a certain suffering. I myself had the opportunity to see such a votive stone of the mothers a few years ago during my time at university. It was in the middle of a forest near Bonn and virtually directly close to the Roman waterline to Cologne that we have talked about several times now. It is the mother with the name of Afani that I had mentioned above, also shown here in Threes. And guess what? At the time completely surprised me. 
As we stood there in the middle of winter in the snow in that forest, there were gifts of money and even fruits as offerings on and next to this little votive stone. So, someone in Rhineland is still attached to the pagan Germanic religions and goes especially into this deserted forest far away from any paved road. One mother figure even had a British penny folded in her hand. If it had been a euro I would have understand it, but no, it was money from Great Britain. Clearly visible on that coin was the portrait of Queen Elizabeth II. I wonder if the spiritual head of the Anglican Church would like that, being placed on a pagan votive stone. Well, I guess there are worse places to put a banknote with the Queen on it. I know I appeal to you often with this, but here you just have to visit my homepage thehistoryofcologne.wordpress.com to see that. It looks so bizarre. And what I found particularly funny, when I found this photo on my old hard drive, I was of course not immediately sure if it was the votive stone of the mothers at that time. So I opened the big book by Werner Eck about Roman Cologne, and what did I discover there? Exactly, this votive stone was printed in the book that I had found in an abandoned forest many years ago. I found this a funny coincidence. Out of all 700 stones that had been found, he decided to print this one. Okay, I hope you have not drinking a shot every time I said mother. If you did, better sober up and then try to continue with this episode. Let's take a look to smaller religious groups, especially oriental cults. As an international trade hub, religious cults naturally came to the Rhine from far away to Cologne. One of the many non-Roman religions in the city was the cult of the Iranian god Mithras. It was popular throughout the whole Roman Empire. The meeting place was probably not far from the present southern portal of Cologne Cathedral, being in the immediate vicinity of the house of the Dionysus mosaic. The cathedral of course then did not exist yet, and its place was still the northern part of the Roman city wall. However, the mentioned meeting room of the Mithras cult was so small that it could probably not hold more than 30 people at once. The followers of the Mithras cult liked to meet in underground vaults or basements and hardly ever came out in public with their religion. Especially Emperor Aurelian, who had reconquered the Gallic Empire for Rome in the last episode, was a great follower of this Iranian deity. As it was a cult that acted very exclusively and Relied on secrecy, we hardly know anything about their practices or beliefs from today's point of view. If anything was reported about their practices, it was written by critics of the Mithras cult. Of course, they did not leave a good report on the cult. Central was however probably the worship of Mithras as a sun god or at least conqueror of the Greek sun god Helios. Much too complicated, let's leave it at that. Around the year 300, however, the Mithras cult was also very popular among Roman soldiers. Women, however, were not allowed to become members. As popular as the cult of Mithras was, it disappeared from the scene as quickly as it had become popular. At the end of the 4th century, it had already fallen to oblivion. The emerging Christianity had turned out to be more attractive. It vanished so quickly that, without corresponding archaeological findings in recent times, we would not even know that the Mithras cult existed at all. Then there was the cult of Isis. This Egyptian goddess Isis has a heavy fate in our time. She's a victim of identity theft by a terrorist organization. She does not deserve that. I still always associate her name with herself, but I'm a history nerd, so 
for this generation at least, the name Isis has been dragged through the mud. Isis is not a common name in Western culture, but I do know some Germans and Americans who have Isis as their first name. And I read an article a few years ago that one of those who were named Isis had serious trouble at the airport. Come on. Because of thousands of years, Isis was and is a very honored goddess. When the Romans started to also worship her around the year 1, her worship was already a fixed part of the cultic life in Egypt for nearly two and a half thousand years. So this is now already four and a half thousand years ago when it started. I think it is always jaw-dropping that the old Egyptian culture lasted so long. Until well into the time of Christianity, about the year 500, Isis was worshipped in the Roman world. She is depicted as a mother deity. She stands for birth, rebirth and also for death. As a figure she was mostly depicted sitting or standing. In her arms she held her new born divine son Horus. It is absolutely no coincidence that later in the course of history, Saint Mary is also depicted with the child Jesus in her arms. The similarity in iconography to the Egyptian goddess Isis is absolutely no coincidence. In Cologne there was a small Isis fan community. Oh man, I must admit that sounds so wrong. What exactly her cult looked like? Well, that's hard to say here too. It was clear that it was probably brought to the Rhine by Roman soldiers who had spent time in Egypt where it came from, just like the Mithras cult originated from the Middle East. With the rise of Christianity from the 4th century and the later end of the Roman rule, this small cult also disappeared from Cologne. Of course there were other small religious communities and cults in Roman Cologne. The ones of Mithras and Isis I have mentioned here as an example. Certainly also Osiris, Apis, Serapis, the Greek god of wine Dionysus, and many more have found a small but faithful following here. Well, remember that big mosaic of Dionysus from a few episodes back. The owner must have been a fan for sure to spend a lot of money on that. In general, however, it can be said that none of the so-called foreign cults ever represented even the broad mass of the population in terms of the number of followers. The Roman gods and the Ubian cult of the mothers were predominant. As an important side note, it should also be noted that hardly any one of the people of Cologne belonged exclusively to a religious community. It was quite normal that you sacrifice to the Roman main gods. It was expected of you as a true Roman citizen. And afterwards you offered a sacrifice to a votor stone that was dedicated to the mothers so that your brother finally gets well and doesn't have that bad cough anymore. That was totally normal and accepted. And if you belonged to this illustrious circle, you then attended a meeting in the evening to worship Isis, to go on a different spiritual level. The rule thou shalt have no other gods before me, as the Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Judaism and later Islam prescribe, well, that did not exist at that time, or alternatively, this had not yet become established. Speaking of Abrahamic religions, there was already a Jewish community in Cologne in ancient times. The reason that they found a home here in Cologne, far away from the Holy Land, naturally has something to do with the Jewish diaspora. The Jewish diaspora itself is so extensive that you could make your own podcast with it, and these podcasts do indeed exist. 
In the year of 135, a last Jewish uprising in the Holy Land against Roman rule failed. As a result, Emperor Hadrian had all Jews forbidden to ever settle in Israel again. Until the foundation of the State of Israel in 1948, the Jews who had scattered all over the world for centuries were to have no home of their own. The history of the Jewish diaspora is full of ways of persecution, expulsion and systematic murder, in addition to temporary successful settlement and adaptation. With all love to my Cologne, it is important to emphasize that this old city on the Rhine, which throughout the two millennia has always claimed to be open and tolerant, small spoiler, this is not always the case, has on several occasions made cruel attacks on Jewish people, whereby these words are still much too understated. For example, not to spoil any events here, but the years of 1096, 1349 and 1424, these years are traumatic and sad milestones in the Jewish history of Cologne. And we all know the list of dates doesn't end here. The period between the years of 1933 and 1945 marks the systematic persecution, exclusion and then extermination of European Jews by Nazi Germany in the Shoah, often better known as the Holocaust. 11,000 Jewish colonians were murdered. For a long time, the city of Cologne itself rejected responsibility for this, stating it would have been the Nazi state in Berlin far away under Hitler with the SS, and not the elites of the city and its administration itself who took part in it. But my goodness, we'll get to all those subjects in detail when we get there with a timeline. You can't imagine how high my standards are to live up to this issue absolutely. You can of course contact me via various channels like social media. Let's now take a look at the Jewish community in the time of Roman Cologne. With the Jewish community in Cologne in Roman times, I chronologically anticipate something in our narrative because it is the famous Roman Emperor Constantine who mentions them first. We will get to know the good man a little better the next week when he stays in Cologne around the year 300. But without Constantine we would actually know almost nothing about the Jewish community in Roman Cologne. In fact, we only know one sentence about it that Constantine wrote. That's right, only one sentence. Emperor Constantine wrote to the Cologne Decurians, the members of the city set in the year 321, we permit all city councillors by general law to appoint Jews to the Curia. Of course, you could now think that this means that Jews could only now settle in Cologne, but a certain amount of land ownership had always been necessary as a basic requirement to become a member of the Council of the Decurians. A Jewish community must therefore have existed for a not too short time. Otherwise, Constantine would certainly not have written this sentence in the year 321, when a Jewish community had just moved to Cologne. But this mention of the Jewish community in the year 321 means one thing above all. In Cologne, there is the oldest Jewish community north of the Alps, whose existence is documented in writing, and it still exists today, having 4,000 members. It belongs to a city like the Cathedral and the Rhine. Unfortunately, this is all we know about the Jewish community in Cologne and Roman times. However, 
Since they did not cultivate any crops in the region, it is very likely that they acted as traders in the city. Recent excavations in the Jewish quarter of Cologne on today's Town Hall Square show that there was already a corresponding place of worship in the 4th century, so something close to a synagogue. However, this is not yet completely certain and research is currently continuing. It's precisely here, on the Town Hall Square, that the new Jewish Museum in Cologne is currently being built, which is the reason why the adjoining Praetorium and the Roman sewer cannot be visited at the moment. I would like to do an episode about Jewish history and Jewish life in Cologne, but the challenge of doing its justice to this topic is something that still fills me with awe. This leads us to the other Abrahamic religion of that time, which originated in Judaism, early Christianity. Around the time we chronologically finished with the last episode, with the end of the Gallic Empire in our podcast, there must already have been a small Christian community in Cologne. But they stayed well hidden then, with good reason, but first let's get the facts. Here it is similar to the first written mention of the Jewish community in Cologne. Around 313, it is first mentioned in writing that the city on the Rhine is a bishop see of a Christian community. It is said that Bishop Maternus from Cologne took part in two councils, one in Rome and another one in Arles in that year. And if you want to know more about Bishop Maternus, well, unfortunately, that's it. That's all we know about him, except that he was once probably also the Bishop of Trier. At that time, the severe persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire just had ended. Only shortly before that, under Emperor Diocletian in the year 303, a new wave of the most severe persecution of Christians in the history of the Roman Empire had occurred that went on for eight years. But then, something unthinkable for many contemporaries happened. In the year 312, Emperor Constantine is on the verge of a battle in the conflict for sole rule in the Roman Empire against a rival. Since Constantine is not too sure of his victory, the evening before the battle, he turns to the Christian god for help, according to a legend. God then speaks to him in a dream and promises him victory if he would stop the persecution of Christians in the empire. And the next morning, Constantine's soldiers are told to paint the monogram of Christ on their shields. Now, that is really the saga expressed very simply. I probably left something out. And technically, the persecution of Christians had ended a year earlier already when another emperor had ruled before Constantine. But that is another story, we should not talk about that. But since Constantine wins the battle the next day, the centuries of persecution of Christians ends abruptly and for good this time. We will talk about Emperor Constantine in the next episode, as he will also leave his mark on Cologne. A big mark. <laughs> A really big mark, yeah. So we will not talk about his motives here for the time being. That would again be too much history of the Roman Empire. Back to Cologne then. Just one year after Constantine's victory, in the year 313, that same Bishop Maternus from Cologne is mentioned in writing for taking part to attend two councils in Rome and Allais, as I have mentioned. Of course, this is no coincidence that it is now that it is reported, because now the church is allowed to act in public, so it no longer has to fear state repression. 
Just as with the Jewish community, the mention of a Christian bishop is the proof that there must have been a Christian community in Cologne that was not too small for a certain time. Up to that time it had been operating in the underground and mainly hidden. Of course there were no official church buildings yet. People met in secret in private houses and celebrated church service. There was not yet an official church structure, the local congregations acted very autonomously. This was obvious, of course, because it was more difficult for the Roman rulers to effectively destroy the structures of the Christians this way. Only once in a while the bishops of these congregations met in secret to discuss general topics. The congregation in Cologne therefore existed long before Emperor Constantine ended the persecution of Christians in 313. For bishop seats were only established where a Christian congregation had already existed for a longer time. Maternus is simply the first bishop we hear for the first time in written sources, but he will certainly not have been the very first bishop in Cologne. What made Christianity so attractive for the people in Cologne and elsewhere? Who joins a religion that was fought so massively, especially in our time around the year 300, often even with the penalty of torture and death? I mention it briefly at first. The gods of the Romans like Jupiter were mainly state gods. They were worshipped for the common good of the state and the community. What made Christianity, similar to the other cults from the east of the empire, so attractive was the promise of personal salvation. We often look at antiquity through rose-colored glasses, including myself. Everything seems so wonderful under the Romans. Architecture, philosophy, religious freedom, engineering, scientific freedom and a world without borders with peace within these borders. But we must not forget, life is hard. Then as much, if not more so than now. Who gives me comfort when a loved one has died? Will I ever see him again? What is the meaning of my life? What happens after death? All these are questions that deities like Jupiter and Mars probably could not answer sufficiently for many people. This is not a missionary activity on my part, oh gosh, no. But for the deeply religious people of antiquity at that time, we must of course understand their motives and their needs. Christianity was a religion that provided answers for them, there was a God who sent his only son into the world. Jesus had grown up like a normal person among normal people, even among poor, simple people. And Jesus had been executed for his beliefs, like a simple man on the cross, like a criminal. For that was the crucifixion in ancient times. It was meant for those who were considered worthless. This very God had knowingly let his own son die like a criminal on the cross. As Almighty God, he could have saved him, but he didn't because Jesus had to die, as for the salvation of the sins of all mankind. And if this was not already a message in itself, Jesus also resurrected from the dead three days after his execution. Winning over death? That's a true miracle. The message here was, do not be afraid of the torments and challenges of this time, for a paradise in eternity awaits you not only for empires or Romans, but for all humans, regardless of origin, gender or social status. A thing that has been stated clearly in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. For those who are Christians, these contents of faith are elementary, whether Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox or whatever. 
Nevertheless, it is important to remember this, not only for those listeners who may not know anything about Christianity, but also to understand how people in ancient times received this message of Jesus. And we all know what unstable times there were in this period of history. Christianity offered for some the consolation they desperately needed. Although Christianity itself established itself in Cologne in the long term, especially in the rural areas beyond the city wall, it probably took a very long time before the pagan cults were suppressed. Even up to the 8th century, far into the Frankish period, pagan temples and practices are known to us in Cologne. But oops, we don't want to give anything away here before. We will come across the further Christianization of Cologne again and again in the next episodes of our podcast, so maybe this should be enough for now. But of course there is also legend about early Christianity in Cologne that I don't want to withhold from you. It is the legend of the holy martyr Gerion. The history of the Cologne Christians, as already mentioned, goes back to the mythical in its beginnings due to the lack of written sources. But that doesn't matter at all, of course, because we love myths. This brings us to the same Gerion. Gerion was a Roman officer from Egypt. Actually, the legend is quite simple to describe. Gerion was a part of a Theban legion, a legion that came from the city of Thebes in Egypt. A part of this legion traveled with Gerion and 318 other soldiers under his command to Cologne. It was that time I just mentioned earlier, when Maximian, who prosecuted Christians like no other before him, was the emperor of the western part of the Roman Empire. Allegedly in the year 304, once again plundering Franks were up to their mischief in the Rhineland. Gerion and his 318 comrades were supposed to put down the uprising. But what nobody knew? Gerion and his 318 comrades were all Christians, but have hidden their faith well so far. That they were now to go to war against barbarians and to kill, they cannot agree with their conscience. After all, one of the Ten Commandments says that you should not kill. When they arrive in Cologne, they decide to openly stand by their religion, which at that time was still forbidden and persecuted and they refused to go to war. The other Roman soldiers in Cologne were beside themselves. As punishment for this treason, they started to behead Gerion's 318 soldiers in front of the city wall because of heresy and the refusal to obey orders. But the officer Gerion did not deviate from his opinion. His soldiers all died without resisting. Finally, Gerion himself is beheaded last. The bodies of the decapitated, including that of Gerion, are thrown by the perpetrators into a well shaft located west of the city. Actually, it's a quick story to tell, but what makes the legend so complicated and finally a legend and not a true story in the following, a Theban legion never existed in Cologne or even in the Rhineland. Maybe this whole Theban legion never existed at all. And the kind of martyrdom that Gerion suffered has been handed down in its form throughout the entire Roman Empire, with local variations of course. Also in Trier, which is not too far away from Cologne, a similar story was told, and in Switzerland too, such a martyrdom has been handed down. The legend itself will truly have a true core, that soldiers who had converted to Christianity were executed in the Roman army, after their Christian faith became known, is to be assumed. 
And so there must indeed have been several people like Gerion in the Roman Empire that had ended like him. But as so often in history, in the end it does not matter what is true and what is not in this legend. What struck me was the curvy number of Gerion soldiers, the number of 318, which was probably the work of the legend makers. They wanted to make a reference to the Old Testament, because Abraham also had 318 companions. So that is that. Saint Gerion stands for today as a saint and patron of soldiers in the Catholic Church, and he is a patron saint of the city of Cologne until today. A large church would soon be built in his honor after his death. At least it will later demonstrably bear his name, because it might have received the name only after the emergence of the legend about Gerion in the 8th century. However, since the church of Saint Gerion was demonstrably built in the 4th century, it is one of the oldest churches in the world, which is still in use today, right here, where else? here in Cologne. But we might be able to talk about its exact construction history in the next episode, if we find room in the script for that. I'm really afraid again that I've taken on way too much. Otherwise we will surely find an opportunity soon. The legend, or rather another legend, does not end here. The slaughtering of Gerion and his 318 comrades was an enormous bloodbath. According to the legend, a granite column standing nearby was splashed with the blood of Gerion. This gave that column a very unusual and powerful characteristic for a column. This so-called blood column was able to judge the character of a human being when it stood in front of it. Well, so much for that. I just want to make you curious for more in the future. You should not forget this blood column. It won't be too long before it appears again in our podcast for another mythic tale. By the way, the columns still exist in the church of St. Gerion. So if you are sinful in any way, don't enter that church or go to confession first. Otherwise, well, let's say things could get messy for you. But like I said, shh, more on that topic soon. Let's end here for today. Tune in again next time when we look at Cologne of late antiquity under Emperor Constantine, or more precisely, when Roman Cologne experiences a brief golden age for the very last time. As always, thank you for listening, and auf Wiedersehen. And if you want to have more background info, just follow me on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you.